If you have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter 4, where we're picking up again our uh, Ephesians series, and we're going to be in verses 24 through chapter 5, verse 2. To just give you a reminder, we're now looking at the call to a new life in Christ, and and the last time we were in Ephesians, uh, Paul was kind of dealing with broad generalities of what our life was like before Christ and what it is now like in Christ. And if you possibly remember, he said we are putting off the old self, the sin, the, the things that used to name us no longer name us. We put on a new self, a new identity rooted in Jesus Christ. And this section has a, a bunch of, of bullet points of what the new life will look like. And, it, and it's grounded, and I'm almost giving away the whole point of the sermon, but it's grounded in the very last verse we'll read. So please pay attention, especially when we get to Ephesians 5, 2. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in Ephesians 4, verse 24. Put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this inspired word. Thank you that it has given Christians throughout the ages a a model, a way to live life, a blueprint of what uh, a life of new birth, new life, new love looks like, and how we can share that amongst one another in this community you've drawn us to, your body, the church. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So most of you know that I have a, another job, a full-time job working in Tuscaloosa, and two years ago I had to start sharing an office with a very sweet woman. I'm happy to share an office with her, um, but she listens to country music nonstop, and I'm a Yankee, so I'm not used to the country music, and it's taken some getting used to, and about three months into it I eventually broke down and said, could we like change the channel? And she goes, Oh, honey, I love the country music, and if I could change the channel, I would. I like 92.1 The Possum. This is 93.5 The Bear. They're just okay. But we can't. We're stuck in this one radio station. We can't get any others for some reason. All that to say, I have become very knowledgeable about today's contemporary country music scene, most of which is not very good, I'm sorry to say. 
But there is one song that kind of hit me, and it, I, it played in the background of my mind, and it's a song by Rodney Atkins called Watching You, and it's a story of a father and son, and it's all the things you would expect. It's a cute song, but the little boy, he, there's a, they almost get in a little traffic accident, and the little boy lets out a, a little bad word, and the dad you know, says, where'd you learn to talk like that? And a little bit later, he's, they're about to eat dinner, and the little boy folds his hands, and he starts to pray. And he's, he prays to God like they're just good buddies. And the dad says, son, where'd you learn to pray like that? Now, the chorus is the boy's answer. And this is the, the final uh, chorus. It changes the words a little bit, uh, depending on what his dad's asking him, but it summarizes it well. So he says, boy, where'd you learn that from? And the son responds, because I've been watching you, dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you and eat all my food and grow as tall as you are. By then, I'll be as strong as Superman. We'll be just alike, hey, won't we, Dad? When I can do everything you do, because I've been watching you. It's cute. But it's, it hits a point that's so true. Every parent knows about it. Every one of us knows about it. We, we look at others and we say, there's, there's qualities in you that I want to aspire to. Or there's bad habits that I'll pick up. Every parent sees in their kids things that they start to do, and, and we can admit it. Sometimes we've got good habits, and they do it, and we're like, all right, good. They saw me do this. Now they're doing it. We often catch the bad parts where, oh, they're doing this. Where'd they learn it from? They, they learned it from me. I need to change something about myself. But this, this passage here is talking about putting on this new self, a new identity, a new way of living life in community. Ephesians is all about the church, and this gathering that we're in together is going to look and be radically different because of this new self, this new life we have. And so Paul begins here, and the reason I started with verse 24, even though it's kind of near the end of the previous par paragraph, is because Paul tells the Ephesians to put on the new self. Well, in a couple chapters, we're going to get to the whole armor of God. And Paul uses the same verb there, put on that whole armor of God. We need to live in, embrace all these things that we're going to go through, all these qualities and characteristics, because they're for our good, but more importantly, they're for the good of others. And how do we learn them? That was the last verse. We learn it by imitating God's love for us, by loving one another. And so let's look at all the ways we're called to love one another. And there was no easy way to break this up. This is not a three-point sermon because it just reads one thing after the another. So we're just going to walk through it. But first, we're called to love one another by being truth-tellers. In verse 25, that's what he says. As we work our way through these examples, we're going to see how, our, how we're going to love one another but also notice that almost every verse is going to start with a negative example. This is the way you once were, and then the positive is going to come. So this verse 25 starts just that way. We're called to put off falsehood and speak truthfully to our neighbors. I mean, this is pretty basic, right? If we're going to build a, a community together with one another, it doesn't matter. It doesn't need to be a Christian community, but if you're going to have community, you have to be honest with one another. You can't be dealing in falsehoods. You can't be dealing in gossip or slander. You need to be able to speak truthfully to one another. So Paul says, put away all of this falsehood. And from now on, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. 
I'm sure most of you had house rules or family rules, things that were you did as a family to, to you know, keep law and order in the household. One of ours is we do not keep secrets. A few years ago, we had to distinguish between secrets and surprises, but we don't keep secrets. Why? Well, it damages trust. It deals in deception, and often it ends up undermining parental authority or mutual respect. If, if, if I'm keeping secrets with one kid away from mommy, well, I'm, I'm not really showing them to respect and appreciate mommy, and I'm dividing us as a family. So we don't keep secrets. But it's not just the negative prohibition. Paul also then endorses positive speech. In this new community called the church, we will talk to you truthfully <clears throat> about yourself. We will hold one another accountable for sin. We will call out, we will build up, we will encourage you in your spiritual life. And since we're no longer looking out for our own interests, we'll be concerned with the interests of others around us, their well-being. And so the only way we can do that is to speak honestly with one another. So I covered that with, we'll speak to you about your sin, we'll speak to you about your spiritual life. We also just need to learn to be honest and let people in. One of the classic things in church life, when you see every one another, you know, sometimes maybe that's the first time all week you saw them and they ask how you're doing, you just say, fine, everything's good. Maybe it was a horrible week. But how is your saint, your brother and sister in Christ, going to know that if you've put on falsehood and not spoken truthfully? We're in this pilgrimage together, and so speaking truthfully, we need to embody it and begin doing it, sharing with one another our burdens, speaking the truth to one another about how our weeks really went so that we can have opportunities to love and care for one another. And Paul goes on. We need to speak truthfully, and so speaking truthfully means we need to allow emotions that we may not be ready for. Verse 26 and 27 reads, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now Paul is echoing a psalm here. Psalm 4.4 says, Be angry and do not sin. And the context of that psalm is David is under distress because people are slandering him. And as in the psalm, so here, if we become angry, and we will, we actually have to not sin. Now notice it, doesn't, it does not say that anger is a sin, and so we can't follow any interpretation that would suggest that anger itself is sinful. The Bible is full of depictions of anger. God is angry at sin. Prophets are angry at people not responding to the message that they're supposed to deliver. Even Jesus is said to be angry at several different occasions. So unlike the other qualities here, there's actually not really a positive. Because Paul's trying to emphasize something, that anger is allowed because anger can be important for community. What do I mean by that? Well, he gives multiple warnings about this, right? How to handle anger. Our anger has an expiration date. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Do you know what happens when you bottle up anger, when you, when you hang on to it? You become bitter. You become hard-hearted. You can't love people well because you're hanging on to something. It eats you from the inside out. C.S. Lewis depicted this really well in his novel, The Prince Caspian, with a, a character, a little dwarf called Nicobrick. And Nicobrick hates 
humans. He's full of anger over how they attacked and killed off many of the old Narnians, the dwarves and the fawns and the other magical creatures. And the, the hero of the story, Prince Caspian, I mean, Nickerbrick, when he first meets him, he wants to kill him just because he's human. And he decides very reluctantly to support Caspian because Caspian might help him kill somebody he hates even more. So that's okay. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, unfortunately, everything goes wrong. And Nickerbrick, who is just so full of hate, will do whatever it takes to win. And so at the end, he betrays Caspian. He tries to summon back the white witch and, and he's killed. Now, what's interesting is as Lewis is writing this, the first person to mourn him is Prince Caspian, the guy he hated. And this is what Prince Caspian says. I'm sorry for Nickerbrick, though he hated me from the first moment he saw me. He had gone sour inside from long suffering and hating. Nickerbrick is a cautionary tale for how easily anger can make us rotten inside. And so we become rotten outside. I mean, bitterness doesn't just stay on the outside, right? You start to just exhibit it. You're moody, you're irritable, you're short. You can't enjoy the pleasures and joys of life anymore. We are given, we are allowed here to feel anger. It becomes with all these caution signs, right? Don't, don't dwell on it. Don't let it stay built up inside. Don't, give, uh, don't let it stay inside it because as it eats us up, it also provides an opportunity for the devil. That's the second caution. The devil would love the opportunity to take your anger and turn it into sinful anger, to take it and turn it from being upset about an injustice to being consumed by revenge, being upset about a slight grievance and making it into a huge split in the family. He would love the opportunity to take this and make it sinful. So how can we be angry and not sin? And how on earth does anger help a community? We don't usually think that way. Our anger is righteous when it's directed at sin. John Stott said there is such a thing as a loving anger. Alistair Begg, another great preacher, said, He that will be angry and not sin, let him be angry at nothing but sin. Are you brave enough to be angry at sin within the church? Will you call it out when you see it in somebody else? Will you confess it when you find it in yourself? Will you confront a brother or sister in the faith when you see something? Or will you be bold enough to take the issue before the elders and say, help, we, we need help with this person who is you know, sinning and won't stop and hasn't repented. And I followed Matthew 18 and I need help. And elders, will we be bold enough to then act right? Sin will disrupt and divide and lie. And in the community that we are called to be in, when we see it, in ourselves and in others, it should make us angry. And it should have us focus on eradicating it. So if we actually love one another, we will keep each other accountable. This isn't supposed to be, you know, secret lists of jotting everything down that somebody does. But it is when, I mean, when we think about confronting it and being angry over it, what we're just doing is embodying what God has called us to, and that is to hate sin and then to love one another. He goes on, if we are to be uh, angry at sin and we are to build up community, well, we need to be a community of honest people. If we love one another, we're going to be honest workers. Verse 28 says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, theft was a pretty big deal in the Old Testament. That's the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. Even for non-believers, I mean, we have civil laws. We don't really like it when people steal from other people's property. So what, what is Paul going on here? Is he just talking about a general you know, uh, summary or you know, something no one's going to find controversial, right? Just, we don't like thieves. We don't like people stealing our stuff. Well, he's probably speaking a lot more specifically to the type of people who are coming into the Ephesus church. So you have to remember, we are way back in the ancient Mediterranean. There's no such thing as a social safety net. There's no Medicaid, there's no Medicare, there's no government agencies. Uh, the local temples to uh, Zeus or to Athena or to the emperor, they don't really care if you are poor. They just need money for themselves. So what happens to people that are economically struggling? Well, they'd find ways to become resourceful. They would steal, they would take things. And Paul is saying here that when you join this community, when you've put on that new self, he that was a thief, known to be a thief, doesn't steal anymore. To be part of this community, you're going to work. And that's what he brings that up to Timothy, right? He that, doesn't, uh, that will not work does not eat. This very famous verse that Mar Margaret Thatcher used that once in a political uh, commentary. But anyways, work is valuable, not so much, as we might think, for just keeping people from thieving, but for everything it does to bless the community. The labor that Paul talks about here isn't just manual labor, although the emphasis is on exertion, but it's, it's contrasting. Instead of just taking a breezy view to life and nipping, nicking a few things here and there, you're actually going to use your hands, your minds, your talents. You're going to work to reap you know, an income. And the second thing is that when some of these believers were thieves, they stole only for themselves, right? It was a sin of self-preservation. But when we put on this new self, they work for themselves, but more importantly for others. Paul said that they may have something to share with anyone in need. This follows others' examples of Paul's uh, emphasis on caring for the poor and generosity. Like in Galatians 6.10, Paul says, Do good unto uh, everyone, especially those of the household of faith. And in Romans 12, 13, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and show hospitality. The only reason that we have social safety nets woven into the fabric of our democracies is because God demanded Christians to care for one another. And that, I mean, that revolutionized the world. As, as political theory started to develop, they were like, hey, th this, this religion that does this? That's actually not a bad thing. Maybe we should care for the, those in need that are struggling so that they can actually produce and give back. We're given gifts so that we can give back to one another. God loves a cheerful giver, Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 9, 7. And if you've known people who have been in, in dire straits, either who are you know, at some point hit so bottom that they were struggling to find employment or working numerous, numerous jobs. Uh, when they do get to a place of where their work matters, where their work gives them a, a sense of dignity, when they're able to contribute to things like, uh, you know, being able to pay bills, being able to get off of support from other people, being able to have the church meet their needs. I've never met one of those people who isn't generous giving back. You can think of Jesus as he's sitting in the temple and he sees the widow come and she just offers whatever she had. She didn't have much, but what God had given her, she wanted to give back.
to God. And that is what Paul is saying here. In this community, we're no longer, if you were a thief, it stops. You're transformed. You're a new self. Now you're a worker, and your work belongs to God and to the community. And he goes on, if we're going to be honest workers, we need to be gracious speakers. We, one, we love one another by being gracious in speech. Verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now there's a relationship between these verses right here and the previous ones. Previously, the emphasis was between good and evil was on action, right? Working and doing things. Well, here, the emphasis between good and evil, right and wrong, is with your mouth, your speech. Paul's language covers all language that would harm someone. It covers swearing, gossiping, lying, abusing, shaming. Uh, think of James writing in James 1, he, or James 3, he says, The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Corrupting talk as Paul uses language, not only defiles the speaker, it harms the listener. They're put in jeopardy. We need to be more aware of how we communicate with one another. When we put on the new self, our standards of conversation actually go up. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great theologian and pastor during World War II, he ran an underground seminary to uh, get around uh, Hitler's takeover of the German church. And he had a seminary in Finkenwald, and he had this house rules, and there were all sorts of rules similar to this list here in Ephesians. But one of them was you were not allowed to talk about another member of the community unless that member was present. Why? Well, because you, you may change the way you're talking about them. You may change what you're about to say if the person you're talking about is right there. Think about the ease with which people tear one another apart right now on social media. There's, no, I mean, there's so much corrupting talk. Why? Because you never have to be face-to-face -face with the person you're talking about. You can just fire off a tweet or put up a post or spat a comment and tear somebody down. Our speech is supposed to be God-honoring. If somebody is given to constant cursing, constant swearing, you may start to wonder, and they're professing faith in Christ, you may start to wonder, all right, you didn't just stub your toe on the corner. I mean, we're just talking about football. What, what, what is going on in your heart that everything is an expletive? You may be uh, you know, wanting to build somebody up, but all they want to do is tear others down with you. You know, when you start meeting new friends and people and trying to create relationships, and you quickly realize, every time I'm with this one person, they are talking about all the bad things about other people in our school or our church or our work or community. There's something wrong there. So those who are confessed uh, to be Christians, they're going to have a renewed speech. And, and there's a really serious warning with this, right? It's dangerous to the community because we could harm one another with our words. But also, Paul says it grieves the Holy Spirit of God. 
Paul emphasizes this over and over. In 1 Corinthians, in two separate spots, he calls the church the temple of God where the Spirit dwells. He reminds us that we were bought with a price. If we are so precious to God, why would we harm one another? Because, why would we harm each other that were so highly valued by Christ? Why would we spit in the face of God by taking his name in vain? Why would we tell lies or slander other brothers and sisters who were of equal value before God? We have been washed, we have been made clean, we have been renewed, we are new people with a new way of speaking. And Paul comes in towards the close here. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. We love one another by being kind. In verses 26 and 27, we saw that you can be angry and not sin. Here, the anger that's mentioned, I mean, it's, it's all the bad sin, right? I mean, it's all the bad anger. It's got the bitterness. It's got wrath. Uh, clamor, I had to look up, but clamor is the, the type of people that fight and argue and just are shouting, are throwing things, are breaking stuff. Um, you know, they do it out in public where people can see. It's very intense. And it just covers, he goes on, anything that's malicious, anything that is intent to harm. A Christian is no longer to be identified with any of these vices. Paul's point is that this is a repetitive way of living. And if it's not being mortified, then you are in trouble. And the new way of living is to put on these other virtues. Kindness, tenderheartedness forgiveness. Now, all these are supernatural. You may not think that because we have sentimental views of kindness and tenderheartedness and forgiveness, but kindness is a fruit of the Spirit, which means it doesn't, I don't just produce it. It comes out of me, if at all, because of the Holy Spirit's work in my life. Biblically speaking, kindness not only is a fruit of the Spirit, but so is tenderheartedness and forgiving they're not listed as fruits of the Spirit, but those words are usually in the New Testament used to refer to God or Christ's mercy toward sinners. These, vice, or these virtues now belong to those who are born again, that have put on the new self. And again, it may sound like either Christian niceness or secular politeness. Uh, if you remember Ellen DeGeneres in her show, her sign-off always was, be kind to one another. And everyone loved it. Oh, be kind. That's so simple. The world could change if we were just kind. But the reality behind the statement was that Ellen DeGeneres wasn't kind to her staff, to even some of her guests, and she had to lose her show over it. There's something at deeper at work behind these three graces than we might think. The way we learn to be kind, the way we learn to be tenderhearted, the way we learn to be loving is by looking to Christ. It's his sacrifice on the cross that is our paradigm by which we're going to model our lives. And this leads into his final concluding point that summarizes everything that's come before it. Verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The imitation of God is how we grow in kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Walking the way Christ walked, loving the way Christ loved, sacrificing the way Christ loved. I mean, we're like the kid in the Rodney Atkins song. 
right? How do we learn to be kind? We look to the Savior. I learned it from you. How do we learn to be loving and forgiving? I learned it from Christ. New Testament love is not sentimental. It's built on sacrifice. It, Paul says that Christ gave himself up for us. In Galatians 2.20, he uses the same language. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live now in faith, I live, by, I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. The love Christ displayed on the cross was for us. It's our model for living in community. His giving of himself is what we need to be transformed, tossing away the old self and putting on the new. Love and transformation are so intimately linked in the New Testament. Jesus is described here as the fragrant offering and sacrifice. The book of Hebrews would say that goes to great lengths to show that Christ's death on the cross was the perfect sacrifice made by the perfect priest on our behalf. So as Christ walked in love, we must now walk in love. We live a life of love because love itself, love himself, gave himself for us. So this new community is better than a country song. This new community is modeled and imitating the very savior of the world. If we're going to learn about what it means to be a Christian, Jesus Christ is the pillar of example. And the most shining way is, of that is at the cross where he died the death that we deserved because he loved us so dearly, so much that he was willing to go to the cross to die for you. And that love now builds up in us to share with one another, to build one another up in the faith. So let us love one another as we go from this place. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for the Holy Spirit who